You're listening to the Rick Soto Podcast. For more information about Pastor Rick Soto and the Ranch Church, go to ranchchurch.com. Romans chapter 5, simply entitling this message, Peace with God. For it starts here in the scripture saying, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So this is a great introduction here that Paul makes to this chapter and he is mentioning some things before and so before. It's actually, if you read the book of Romans, of course we've been preaching it and talking about it. It's almost as if you just want to say, Paul, enough, I get it, I'm a sinner. <laughs> he says it in chapter 1. He says it in many different ways of chapter 1. And then he says it in chapter 2. And he's addressing different people in each. He says it in chapter 3. And he continues his theme that we are actually justified, meaning as if we just as if we never sinned, that God looks at us with purity and holiness because it's actually his righteousness through Jesus Christ that has come to us. And so let me share some ideas and thoughts to help us understand what it means to be justified by faith, what it means to have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Being forgiven of sin from the past, from the present, and from the future, this is the promise of the cross, being actually forgiven of all of your sin, everything you think, everything you do sinfully, don't do, and it's sinful, has been forgiven at the cross, and it is the most gratifying and satisfying thing ever. It is deeply, deeply gratifying, your forgiveness. You don't deserve it, neither did I. He bought for it, and he gave it to you. It's possible that as you were up this morning, whatever the circumstances, maybe it's mental, maybe it's some actual action, that you just started sinning. And you know what Christ has to say about that through the cross? He says you are actually forgiven. Forgiveness through the cross is intellectually satisfying. It's intellectually satisfying because it's true. Jesus rose from the dead on the third day. Can you say amen? amen. Thank you. He did. He died on the cross exactly as he prophesied in his earthly ministry. He died on the cross exactly as it has been spoken of through the Old Testament time after time. And he was resurrected on the third day in the exact manner he said, I'd be crucified. He mentions Pontius Pilate. He talks about the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. He talks about all the reasons of why that's going to happen. He dies on the cross. It's intellectually satisfying. Ask somebody, tell me and disprove for me the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Disprove it for me. The only way that anybody could do it is to be a fool and say, I do not believe in history. So I don't believe that we can know anything. I don't know. I don't believe we can know anything about what happened a week or two ago. I don't believe that we can know anything about what happened a year ago. I don't believe that we can know anything that happened a hundred years ago. So somebody would have to be 
silly enough and dumb enough and stupid enough to just discount all of the knowledge of human history to have some sort of rationale to disprove the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Forgiveness of sin is intellectually satisfying. I'll use this word this way. It's psychologically satisfying in terms of how it affects our emotions. I love waking up in the morning and saying, I've been forgiven of sin. I haven't even started my day. I can look in the mirror and say, wow, that's pretty amazing. If I sin today, I'm forgiven ahead of time. That's pretty amazing. In fact, God's already chosen how to work out my sin. If I were to wake up in the morning and say, God, I'm going to willfully choose to rebel against you and sin today. He's already chosen how he's going to work that out. And the foundation of that is his grace, which will never work out. Now, if I choose to rebel, God has ways of correcting. Oh, I didn't get an amen on that, did I? No, just, just, that, just that silent pause. God in his love has ways of correcting. And so forgiveness of sin is, is intellectually satisfying. It's psychologically satisfying. It's personally satisfying. He died for me. I don't know if he died for you. He died for me. Okay, he died for you. But that's how personal it is. Were there nobody else around, he would choose to save you. Were there nobody else around, he would choose to redeem you. Were there nobody else around, he would still do the very same act of paying for your sin himself and bringing you into the kingdom of God so that you can be blessed and lead a blessed life. It is intellectually, psychologically, and personally satisfying. And Paul mentions these words that we have been justified by faith, which is why I like to say just as if I never sinned, it is by faith. So what's satisfying about that is that it's not based on a curve or a test of some sort. It is actually that God has actually given it to you by faith. And so we have this peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So may I actually ask church a question this morning? How many of you this day, this moment, would be bold enough to raise your hand and say, I actually need peace with God? Anybody there with me? Okay, all of us, if we either are in possession of it, we want more possession of it. And if we don't have it, we actually want it. And so this is this peace with God. To know that the God of the universe, I mean, who are we talking about when we talk about the God of the universe? Okay, so we're talking about God who has no beginning and he has no end. We're talking about God who said, I choose to create humanity. I choose to create humans. And so I need to author in the laws of physics. Laws of physics, whoo! I need to create a universe. It needs to exist. So let's create it, whoo! And now I need to actually put light in place. I need to put heat in place. I need to put the laws of gravity. And I need to have a moon in a certain location, a sun in a little location. I need all the rest of the universe to be perfect in its place so that in all the places in all the universe there exists a place called Earth. And on Earth, I'm going to uniquely come. And I'm going to let human beings in my own image exist there for you. And he did it like that. He authored it. He willed it. He didn't counsel you. He didn't counsel another human being. He didn't hold a democratic court with angels. He didn't go and talk to anybody else. He said, I am the divine, supreme ruler, God, and Lord. 
There is no one greater, nothing greater. I'm the highest intellectual thought you can ever have. I'm the highest emotional satisfaction that could ever be given. And I choose to bring you into existence right now. And it was done. That God looks at all of your sin and says, I forgive it justly because I'll pay it because I did. And you won't have to even hold on to the law. I'll fulfill the law as right as it is and I'll release you from the curse of the law. That God has now come to give you peace with God. And we have this access by faith into his grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So this hope of the glory of God is to actually say that you were born in the image of God. So what does that mean? I have a wonderful English lab dog named Lily. Some of you guys see her running around on occasion. So Lily, as great as my lab dog is, is not making the iPhone. In fact, when I go to pay my bills and I log online, I can't go to my dog Lily and say, Lily, will you log online and pay my bills for me? She can't do that. In fact, when my kids were younger and I needed them to get picked up at football practice or I needed them to get picked up at this place and I needed them to go do something, say, hey, Lily, can you get in the car and go do this? No, she can't do that. You know why? Because she's a dog. And she doesn't care about nothing except the fact that I'm going to feed her at the beginning and end of every day. The animal kingdom is not creating. It's not doing things like that. It doesn't have that capacity because they're not made in the image of God. We are made in the image of God. We uniquely as human beings have the creative nature of God. So we make things. We invent things. We make clothing. We make uh, furniture. We make houses. We make high rises. We, we are perpetually creating things. We're learning things. The only thing my dog has ever learned is that I will feed her. We're made in the image of God. And so this phraseology that the scripture gives us to understand, that we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, is that there's a restoration going on in your life. The restoration going on in your life is that God's actual original design for you is being implanted in your life, cultivated in your life, and lift up in your life. Some of you think you're too old for that. Don't think that. He's restoring your life. He is. And this is part of your divine purpose. And as we like to say around here in the church, it's just an earthly phrase, but we like to say we're on the winning team because we are. If you persecute Christians, they become stronger. If you persecute the church, it becomes stronger. And if we were to actually suffer and die righteously or whatever the case is, we go to heaven and we hang out with angels. The Bible says related to angels and us in heaven is that we actually judge them and tell them what to do. That's pretty cool. Angels in the Bible are known as powerful figures. So it's so amazing that we would actually be those who hold court over angels and actually tell them what to do. Christians are actually bulletproof. Christians are actually untouchable. 
We are made in the image and likeness of God. I'll give you one reference as I know. We'll just continue on in just a moment. But Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 28, there are actually, it's going to be repeated in the scriptures, a series of phrases twice, which are actually the, the, the words in Hebrew, rule and subdue, which can literally be translated fierce mastery. And so we are actually created to actually bring a rulership to planet Earth and to actually bring it into submission. And humans are the only ones that can do that. The animal kingdom cannot do that. It's really fascinating to me to think about the animal kingdom. So the animal kingdom by God on this part of eternity is actually spooked by humans. So again, I had a, uh, not long ago, I had a little cubby bear come onto our property out of the creek. Little cubby bear. So cute, cuddly. Oh, just so cute. And it stood up on its corn corners like that. And it was just kind of hanging out. I mean, this was really out of like a movie. It just wanted, I was early in the morning, I wanted to go and like hug it. You know, it's just, oh, that's great. You know, it's like about my size. Well, of course, this creature, even as a little cubby, could tear Pastor Rick Soto up. I'd never be able to outrun it. I'd never be able to out-wrestle it. It would just eat me for lunch. And so I opened the door. And Lily comes out by my knees, my little lab dog who can't bite anything, and barks at this fierce creature. And then I yell at it. I go, hey, get out of here. And this creature gets spooked and then runs off. Sissy bear. The animal kingdom in some places should be able to terrorize us, but it can't. It's all kinds of unique ways in which we exercise fierce mastery. Going on in the text here, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that our sufferings produce endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. I want to ask you, in light of that section, to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. I'm going to read this section and just make some comments as we go. It's a parallel thought to where Apostle Paul says, not only this, but we rejoice in our sufferings. I tend not to quickly rejoice in my sufferings. I tend to not like my sufferings. Are you guys with me on that? I tend to pray, oh God, make my sufferings go away. I'm not happy about my sufferings. I don't really like you, God, related to my sufferings. Those are all my earthly responses. But I want to read to you this from Romans chapter 8, verse 31, that I pray is so very, very familiar to you. But let's just soak here for a few moments. For the scripture is going to say, what, sh what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, I want you to see the logic of this. Again, I'm reading in Romans 8, verse 31. Now on. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how he will not also with him graciously give us all things. That is the scripture appealing to the intellectual mind, saying, if God would sell himself out for you on the cross, 
if he would literally give himself, if he would literally give his son, who had all the power at any moment, when Jesus is on the cross, he can get off the cross. He wasn't murdered. He gave. When he's mocking, when he's being mocked, excuse me, as you read the text of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're mocking him on the cross. He can actually get off when they say, hey, why don't you get down here and show us a thing or two, if only you knew. I can get off the cross. You don't want me to get off the cross. You want me to die for you and free you from your sin. So that is the logic that has been mentioned here in Romans chapter 8. Continuing on, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Church, have you ever, ever been charged in your heart and your soul? Had like a messenger and call you all kinds of terrible names? Has that ever happened to you? You ever in your heart and your mind felt shame? And guilt, because right now I'm telling you there's forgiveness of the cross, but have you, even knowing the forgiveness of the cross, still felt accusations of shame, still felt accusations of guilt? Have you ever had that? That's what he's appealing to. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is to condemn. If that God of the universe who authored everything into existence and claims that he loves you and claims that he forgives you and has actually paid the penalty which should be yours, but he took it on himself, no one, no demon, no angel, nothing, no human being has any permission before God to ever accuse you of anything. That's what he's saying. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised and who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. That means right now, Jesus Christ, right now, right now, is in heaven thinking about you and interceding and, and praying into all the needs of your life. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Now the list. Now church, shall tribulation, can tribulation separate you from the love of God? How about distress? Can distress separate you from the love of God? How about persecution? Can persecution separate you from the love of God? How about famine? Okay, this is a little weird, but he mentions nakedness. So that can't even separate you from the love of God. How about danger or sword? Can those things separate you from the love of God? No. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the what? That's exactly right. In Christ Jesus our Lord. Peace with God. Peace with God. 
It's why we say such things as being bulletproof. It doesn't mean that there's not a real life. It doesn't mean that there not aren't sorrows or it doesn't mean there aren't things to ever overcome. It doesn't mean that you're going to walk as a Christian in this lifetime absent of pain or brokenheartedness or absent the need to process all kinds of hardship from time to time. But it does mean that you are on the winning team because you have been born again, bought with a price, and you have entered into the kingdom of God by which the things we have just read are true and made evident and activated in your life. This phrase, back to Romans 5, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. <laughs> we, we rejoice in our sufferings. You should know that sometimes your pastor wrestles with the Bible. See, if I, I'm convinced, I just, I, I'm, not, I'm not alone in this, I'm sure you join me, but you know, if Paul were asking me, hey, Pastor Rick, what do you think about rejoicing in our sufferings? You know what I would say? No. No, 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 that, that's not part of the economy. No, no, rejoicing in you immediately making sufferings permanently go away. For which the Bible would say, yeah, that's called heaven. In this lifetime, as a follower of Jesus Christ, you will grow and change through hardship and various kinds of suffering. Some will be as intense as we just talked about with our wonderful, wonderful friend Betsy, whose husband Marvin is now with Jesus. That's obviously very intense. Others will be more pedestrian, but they'll hurt. Somebody says something or doesn't say something, and they'll hurt. And there'll be forms of suffering. Sometimes in our sufferings, even good people, good Christians, and good friends say all the wrong things sometimes. <laughs> So let's talk about what suffering teaches us. Suffering teaches us a few things. And one of them is how to say no to those things that are bad and yes to those things that are good. In the natural and in the supernatural, if you want to lead a happy and abundant life, that first principle but which the Bible talks about in righteousness will win the day. If you can, in the natural, with help in the supernatural, learn what it means to say yes to good things and no to bad things, you will actually win. How to do that, of course, is the walk of faith. How to do that requires actual Bible study and not just Bible reading. How to do that requires a community to remind you who you are in Christ. Secondly, related to what suffering teaches, suffering teaches us the power of forgiveness. For we have actually been forgiven of our sin. And some of our suffering, some of the, the pathway of that victory, some of the walk of faith that comes about is that God will elevate in our lives the need to be those people who are actually manifesting his forgiveness by actually granting forgiveness to those who have broken our hearts. Those who don't deserve the forgiveness 
outside of God's manifold grace. And yet God will come to you and say, yes, that person, part of your suffering, it's not the cause, it's not the reason, but it's what you're learning along the road of suffering. And you realize the Holy Spirit comes and awakens inside you the need to forgive somebody. It's not even related to the situation of your suffering, but the need to forgive that person. He will elevate through suffering your need to be someone who is actually manifesting his grace by offering forgiveness to those who have actually broken your heart. Third, relating to what suffering teaches, suffering actually teaches you how to submit to God and honor his authority. So some have actually come for prayer from time to time, and sometimes we've been in groups and we're looking at someone's life and we care about them so much, and we think, oh, brother, sister, the only way out for you is just to so zealously honor God and submit to him. We understand your flesh would want this. No, don't do that. Stay in that narrow, narrow, narrow path. Honor God. Honor Jesus Christ as your authority. Have that kind of fear of God. You can start by honoring the word. This is just not a series of words on a page. It's actually God's word. And so to honor authority and to honor and submit to God. Next, quickly, we understand that suffering teaches us how to love. And so we actually learn through suffering how to bond. And we actually learn through suffering how to attach uh, to the right people. We actually understand through time, through our suffering, who our friends are and who our friends aren't. And it doesn't mean that those who didn't show up in your life during your season of suffering hate you or something like that. It's just, it's just a matter of what's, what's been manifested so much in, in your life as you're going through a season of suffering. I know that's just so richly true for me. And, you know, I've told so many different kinds of stories, so I won't belabor it. But just during my difficulties of whatever season, especially most related to an accident I had to just find out, you know, who those brothers were that just came. And I'm so indebted to those who just sat right in front of me while I was in deep physical pain and emotional pain. And some who realized, Rick, it's time for you to get up, okay? So, you know, we're, we're putting this behind us. And now grab my hand, get up out of this chair, and we're going to go for a walk. And we're going to start walking. We're going to start moving that body. God is going to heal you. And I'm going to walk with you every step of the way. So some of those are sometimes God just raises up unique people for unique seasons in life. And so suffering, one of the things it teaches you is how to receive love, how to give love, how to be in that rhythm of giving and receiving love. But be sure that that victory that God has for you is absolutely certain. I think about the scripture. I think about it's really part of the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis. And in Genesis chapter 43 and on, there's a series of uh, really, really rich and fascinating stories. And so Jacob has, has lost, he thinks, Joseph. But Joseph, in the context of the story, is actually one of the most powerful men in the world. He's a prime minister of Egypt. But Jacob, as the old man and father, thinks that he's actually lost his son years and decades and decades ago. 
And so now the brothers, because of the famine, have gone to Egypt and they have to come back and forth and back and forth because Joseph does not believe their brothers. So there was those, those brothers or their half-brothers, they tried to murder him. They tried to kill him. They sold him into slavery. So he justly has complete distrust of them. And so he's, he's doing things to sort of try and surface uh, the truth. And so now uh, Judah actually finally, the brother Judah finally raises up and he's a right, he changes and he, he's becoming a righteous man. And so in, now, now those brothers have to grab the only brother that Joseph had as, as true blood, Benjamin. Benjamin and Joseph had the same mother and the same father. Everybody else is kind of a half sibling, And we would simply say that that entire family was very complicated. And so Jacob now is being told by Judah that Benjamin has to leave his side and go to meet this man in Egypt, but Jacob doesn't know anything. And so Judah stands up and he says, I'll pledge my very life, which is saying, I will give my very life to ensure the safety of Benjamin. And if you don't let us do this, we're all going to die anyway because there's a famine in the land. And so Jacob begins to cry and wail and he prays and he just says, oh, how, how, how I wish I had would died and how difficult God has been to me and how God has judged me harshly. And it's all this woe and it's all this woe. And of course, from his vantage point, he doesn't know. Every parent would understand the pain of that. You're asking me to give my younger son when I've lost the older one. It was so fascinating when he finds out the truth a couple chapters later. He finds out that Joseph's alive and not just alive, but that God had a divine and sovereign plan over all of this suffering. For Joseph himself will tell his brothers, it was actually God himself who did all of these things so that I could be someone positioned uniquely to save life. That is my role in this lifetime is to actually save life. And so go tell my father and bring him back. And when they tell him that, they're telling him, you could tell when you read the text, Jacob is trying to understand it. He's trying to understand it. And then it's just so classic, an old patriarch, an old tough cowboy desert farmer. And he says, enough. I will go and I will see my son again. That's right. That's right. That's, that's that blessing that comes when we get the further understanding of all that as God is doing. I would lastly help you to understand. For the scripture says, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. God is known as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Related to Father, it's so fascinating to think of God as Father for He loves us, but so many people or some anyway, struggle to understand a loving father because of their earthly history. So as I've kind of gotten older, and I'm not one right now, I'm not a grandfather right now, but so much of my peer group is beginning to have their kids have kids and all of that. And so some of my friends are saying, hey, Rick, you know what? If I had known that grandkids were so great, I would have had them first. I mean, being a granddad and a grandma, this is so great. I would have had the grandkids first. That's like awesome. You know, they start talking that way. And so that season of life has not come to me. 
But God says that he's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I sometimes wonder if it wouldn't have been easier for all if he had described himself as grandfather. I'm grandfather. I'm not just father, I'm grandfather. I know that because my grandfathers were so great to me and I loved them so well. And I could, I could bore you with countless great stories of them that I won't right now. But what happens to us in our humanity is that we have demonic messages of evil because you sinned or because somebody sinned against you. And the residue of that is that demons have actually made it their job to make sure you feel that pain every day of your life, to hold you down, to oppress you, to steal your identity in Christ, to destroy your destiny in Christ, to try and torment you time after time so that you don't hear the blessed words of God as Father, I love you, my son and daughter. We would say to the moon and back, but God would say to heaven and back, I love you and I will never forget about you. In fact, I haven't forgot about you any second of your life. I'm with you now more than you would understand. If only you knew the warfare that I'm winning on your behalf right now. If only you knew the plans that I still have for you, the hope that is still inside you, the callings that are true and irrevocable. So I sometimes wish that God had said grandfather. Thank you for listening to the Rick Soto Podcast. For more information about Pastor Rick Soto and the Ranch Church, go to ranchchurch.com.